Our passage this morning is about teaching and admonishing one another. And so to do that, I would like you to come back to school with me. I know for most of us that's going back a little way, and for me, as you'll see in a moment, it is a profoundly awkward experience. It will surprise you, I am sure, to learn for you to learn that I was a very odd little boy at school. Well, I wasn't little, but I was very odd at school. I don't say odd because I'm being modest. I don't say odd to exaggerate. I don't say odd for humorous effect. I say it because it is a fact documented exhaustively in my school reports. So I would like you to come all the way back 38 years to 1976, a year you probably remember as the hottest summer on record, but for me it was the time of my first ever school report, from Mrs Bickham, St Wilfrid School, Haywards Heath, yellow class. My formal education did not get off to a flying start. Daniel is a quiet, sensitive child who has taken time to get used to school life, He is still rather unsure of himself. And then the next sentence. This is the single nicest thing that Mrs. Bickham could find to say about my entire year of academic achievement. When he puts his mind to it, he can usually do what is expected of him. Bear in mind that aged four or five, all that was expected of me was finger painting and using the sandpit, running around the the playground in the classroom without bumping into anyone or anything... It appears I could only manage that with extreme effort of mind. Daniel was particularly slow to take part in physical education and swimming lessons. However, he is generally gaining confidence here too, and could enjoy these times if he allowed himself to. I was an incredibly frustrating child to teach. My teachers were trying all the right things, but I was no help at all. I didn't really understand what school was about or what it was for. To sum it up, perhaps, I'll let our very own Janet Drayton explain. The year is summer 1978. I am in pink class. I told Janet a few weeks ago that uh, I was going to share one of my school reports, and would she like to come and read it out? Unfortunately, she's travelling this weekend, um, but she asked me what was in it, and I wouldn't tell her because uh, I'm ashamed So I'm really glad that she's forgotten this, but I'm going to share it with you, but can we keep it just between us? Because I'm horrified that she'll hear this and remember and go, oh, that was you. It is June the 12th, 1978. Janet Drayton writes, Daniel's general attitude to life seems to be a more relaxed one as he matures. This is evident by the absence of tension build-ups and then disruptive releases from strain. This is probably a factor in his steady all-round progress this year. Three comments. First, I would have led with the all-round steady progress and then the severe examples of mental illness. Secondly, what kind of demonic, unteachable nutcase was I, aged seven? And third, Janet is clearly both a saint and possibly still to this day, the only person whose authority, and I think we've all experienced Janet's authority, Janet doesn't suggest, she instructs. Janet still is the only person with the authority to constrain any disruptive releases from strain that I may be tempted to. 
She goes on that the quality of his, English, of his written English varies. He should try to widen his vocabulary and to form letters of even size. Forming letters of even size may seem the most obvious, intuitive, and perhaps basic of tasks. It took me a further two years. Summer, 1980, Mrs. Watts's class. Daniel's work has improved overall, but the standard tends to fluctuate. He can write well, and his letters are becoming more regular and a better size generally. He can also cope well with ink. <laughs> I'm not sure pre-1980 what I was doing with the ink. What's a little worrying is how much of my 1980 report is valid still today. It appears that ink is the last thing that I mastered. Spelling, for example, she writes, remains an area of weakness, as anybody who's proofread the church magazine will attest. However, I feel this is perhaps due to a wish to finish work quickly. He is inclined to chatter, rather, and neglect his work. I am verbose to this day, as you will find out in 45 minutes when the sermon finishes. Creative writing indicates a rather dry, but nevertheless very humorous attitude to life generally. School reports were very different in the 1970s and the 1980s to how they are now. For my three children, school reports were typewritten and came from a computer program designed simply to affirm one's self-esteem. Most of my school reports could be summed up with just one phrase, what's wrong with Daniel? Each of my school reports had just one written sentence, one about English, one about maths, one about physical education. And then at the bottom, there was a general section of remarks, a chance for the teacher perhaps to sum up my entire academic achievements and the nature of my character uh, during the school year in question. 1981 is summarised under general remarks thus. Daniel is a difficult child to get to know and understand. He would appear to be a deep thinker and does not show emotions outwardly. It is, therefore, hard to know sometimes how to get through. This probably wasn't helped by the fact that for three months at the end of 1979 and the beginning of 1980, I pretended to be profoundly deaf and refused to speak to anyone at school. So to Janet, Mrs. Bickham, Mrs. Watts, nearly 40 years later, I have the opportunity for the last word, even if that word is misspelt and the characters are all a strange size. And I have to confess that when I was typing this, and still to this moment, I don't know if misspelt is two words or one and how many S's there are. I haven't learned anything. Anyway, thank you. My final word is just that. Thank you and I'm sorry. Thank you that when it was hard to get through and it seemed I did not care or I was unsure, that you taught me anyway. That when I didn't get even the most basic and the most obvious things right, you taught me anyway. When I was chatting and it seemed I wasn't listening, you taught me anyway. When I resisted the temptation to enjoy physical education of every kind, you taught me anyway. Whether tension was building up or being disruptively released... You persisted with patience and taught me anyway. Teachers play a huge role in our lives. If I'm honest, I can't remember most of the lessons and I can't remember anything I was taught, but I can't forget my teachers. Henry Brooks Adams wrote, a teacher affects eternity. He can never tell where his influence stops. Today, when we talk about teaching one another, we're called to have that same eternal influence over one another's lives. Even if we think we are terrible students or feel we are poor teachers, 
even if it seems like we haven't mastered it ourselves or learnt anything in ages, even if it seems like the person we've been trying to teach, we've been teaching the same thing for years. Teaching isn't a linear progression. It's a craft of patience and then sudden breakthroughs. For me at school, that breakthrough came in 1984 from a maths teacher at Warden Park, John Soden, Mr. Soden to me. It it was still hard in 1984 for any teacher to get through, but somehow Mr. Soden did. When I entered his class, uh, we had at that time both GCEs and O-levels, and if you weren't quite good enough to get an A through C at O-level, you would sit the GCE, and GCE grade one was about the same as a C at O-level. At that point in maths, I was in the third set and uh, only able to take the GCE, and at that point estimated a two. What I tell you now, I don't tell you out of any pride at my accomplishments, because after what I've just shared, I have no pride left to give. But I give it to show the power that a teacher can have over an individual's life, because Mr. Soden changed my life. After just two years in his class, I took maths at O-level and statistics both a year early and got an A. The people who make the biggest difference in our lives are not those who always say yes to us or tell us what we want to hear, but those who show us clearly the truth and challenge us by showing us who we were always meant to be. The truth is I wanted to be like Mr. Soden. He showed me that being smart was okay, but being a smart aleck wasn't. He nurtured my intellectual curiosity and gave it purpose. I understood when he taught me, and I knew that it was okay to study and to learn. And he changed me not just in maths, but for my entire academic career. One of the great privileges of preaching is the time spent dwelling with the subject. A few weeks ago, I sent an email to Mr. Soden. He uh, emigrated just after teaching me. Most of my teachers did. Um, Four of them left the country, two left the profession entirely. But it was a wonderful opportunity to send him an email And after 30 or so years, thank him for the fact that what he taught me lasted long after the bell rang. This morning, we continue our one another theme with the call to teach and admonish one another. God does not expect us to stop learning when school's out. When our educational career ends, Jesus, just as his disciples called him rabbi, longs to teach us and for us to teach one another. This morning's passage uh, in my NIV is headed, Living as Those Alive in Christ. Alive is our discipleship theme this year. What does it mean to live? How do we live as those alive in Christ? Colossians 3 splits this into two parts. First, as those alive in Christ, we are to put to death the old, or to take off. It's a sort of a garment that they're talking about. Take off the old character, put it to death, and then we clothe ourselves or put on the new, the new garment or the new character. What's important to understand from this passage as we look at it this morning is that the whole reading, if you look through those verses uh, from verse 5 to verse 12, is corporate, it's relational, it's plural. Our faith is not something that's just about us. It's not something you do at home in private with the door closed. Everything about this character and being alive in Christ is about being in community. It's all plural. It's all relational. Being alive in Christ is not an individual attitude or garment. It's a fresh culture, a new community. We are alive only when we are alive and growing as part of a living body together. 
And this is at odds because most people consider their faith to be the most personal and the most private thing. Our whole society is about us as individuals, a culture of me, 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 myself and I. It's only okay to have faith if it's private, personal and bothers nobody else. There's just one problem. That's not at all biblical. John Wesley wrote, You wish to serve God? Remember that you cannot serve him alone. You must, therefore, find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Our personal faith is not personal. It's always lived out and refined in relationship directly, first with God, and then in and through that relationship with one another. Scripture does not give us the option of a solo or superstar career. We are one living body. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since, as members of one body, you were called to peace. I love the words. I think they're beautiful. The expression that starts the key passage we're looking at this morning. Verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. The message translation says, give the word the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your life. Or Wesley's notes say, let the word of Christ, the whole scripture, and thereby the divinity of his master, dwell. Not make a short stay or an occasional visit, but take up its stated residence, richly, in the largest measure and with the greatest efficacy, so as to fill and govern the whole soul. Dwelling speaks of time and belonging, a deep sense of comfort, abundance, love and relation. But I think to understand verse 16, we really need to read the, word, the, the words of it backwards. Zoe will tell you that I love a long, hot bath, also occasionally with scented candles and a glass of wine, but that's a different sermon. I love to dwell, and one of the few things that makes me relax and gets rid of disruptive releases from strain. But this passage doesn't call, call for us to dwell with the word in that way, and then once we're relaxed and, and in the right frame, then we teach and admonish one another, and then after that come the spiritual songs and the worship and the thanksgiving. The verse is kind of meant to be read backwards. Because we are thankful, we share with one another hymns and spiritual songs. The thankfulness comes first, and then the worship. And as we worship one with another, so the word comes, the truth comes. Not in us individually. The dwelling place, if you look at it, is not that the spirit dwells in us, or the word dwells, dwells in us, or we dwell in God. This verse talks about dwelling among us. As the community comes together in thanksgiving, as we share praise and worship together, as we share the word together, then the Spirit dwells among us in truth and love, dwelling amongst us as we teach and admonish one another. The word teach means to communicate or impart truth. The word admonish means to caution and warn away from error. We're looking through a whole series of these one another sayings. And I have to confess that uh, when Mike and I worked on this and then he sent me an email and said that I'd got the one on teach and admonish, it wasn't my favorite subject. But this is a beautiful passage and a wonderful truth. Because it's a challenge to us when we're teaching 
that there is such a thing as absolute truth. You see, the modern world says that basically you can believe whatever you want as long as you're sincere about it. You can't tell me what to do. There's really only one commandment left in society, which is that thou shalt not judge. We run from definitive values and behavior-binding truth. We have a problem with and an aversion to authority. But while putting myself at the center and having my own religion may be life-affirming, It cannot be life-changing. The Bible says there is real absolute truth and real danger in error, and it is important to live and dwell in that truth, that we teach it to one another, share it with one another, and where we see error, we warn one another. Because only in the truth of the gospel are hearts changed. Only under the truth and authority and care of God are lives transformed and does growth come. Only by exposure to the truth of Scripture will the body of Christ be built up and restored. And where there is risk or danger of moving away from that truth, of losing that dwelling, then we must be willing to warn each other. That's all the word admonish means. It means to warn someone away from error. And the word speaks of an equality of grace. Admonishment is not about putting yourself in authority over someone else. It's about reminding each other of God's authority and grace over both of us. Herbert Schlossberg wrote, Anyone with a hierarchy of values has placed something at its apex. And whatever that is, is the God he serves. Those who will not accept the commandments or admonishment when they are wrong have set themselves at this apex. Putting yourself in charge is always life-affirming, but it's not life-changing. We must learn to give and accept admonishment, but we do that in relationship with one another, through the fact we both share God at the apex. We do it in relationship, with humility and grace, and with discretion. And Only when we love one another so much that we're willing to risk that deep relationship and that dwelling in order to pass a warning onto the other that they risk losing us. Admonishment never puts us in authority. It points to God in authority, always and only in relationship. Admonishment outside of relationship is just condemnation. Often Christians run outside to admonish the community. We need to be careful of that. Our spiritual army does not include what I call the high visibility jacket of judgment and the walkie talkie of hypocrisy. Have you ever come across these people? You'll meet them from time to time when a road is closed or something needs to be marshaled, and they've been granted authority in the form of a high visibility jacket and a walkie talkie. The police in our country are imbued with a number of powers, but none so powerful as an ordinary citizen in possession of a high-visibility jacket and a walkie-talkie. It somehow goes to people's head, and they lose all leave of their senses. 1 Thessalonians 5 urges us, not just to teach, but we urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. We do so without hypocrisy, and under grace. But importantly, we're called to be patient with everyone. Teaching takes love, and it takes time. We need the patience of Janet Drayton, 
Mrs. Bickham and Mrs. Watts. You learned at the start of this sermon that I was not an easy pupil. Within this church, it took a good number of people a good few years to get through to me. Sometimes we might not be listening, but teach us anyway. Sometimes we might be distracted, but teach us anyway. Sometimes we might be too stressed or too busy. Teach us anyway. We can find it awkward to know how to get through to somebody. We teach them anyway. In the end, after years of praying and struggling and fighting and trying Billy Graham, in the end it was Cliff Richard whose teaching got through to me. But that's another story. I know we feel inadequate and we would rather leave the teaching and the, definitely the admonishment to someone else, just as I would have rather this sermon was given by almost anybody else. But verse 17 reassures us, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him.